This podcast was designed to introduce the playbook of Israel's leading tech sales professionals. But today's episode highlights my inspiration behind this podcast. The host of 30 Minutes to President's Club, Nick Segelski. It's an honor to share Nick's techniques of how to become accurate rather than optimistic. We start every show with your top three takeaways. All right. Well, number one is to stop working junk deals. What I mean by junk deals are deals where the customer says, yeah, you know, I need to think about this a little bit. Can you call me in two weeks? And then in two weeks, can you call me in four weeks? And then in four weeks, can you call me in another two weeks? And they keep pushing and pushing. What you need to do with these deals is use what I call a humbling disclaimer. And what that might sound like is, let's say you did a demo with a customer and it went well, but it wasn't like one of those blow your mind demos where they're ooing and eyeing. What you might say when you talk with the customer after that meeting is, Alex, I feel kind of awkward saying this, but I kind of got the sense that we didn't blow your mind with that demo. Am I totally off base with that? And what happens there is one of two outcomes. Outcome number one, is that they agree with you. And now you've given them a graceful out because you've given them them the excuse to tell you that you're not a good fit. And a lot of customers struggle with telling a salesperson no because they've had bad experiences with pushy salespeople in the past. So you give them a graceful out and they take it. Outcome number two is they say, no, that's not the case. We really did like the demo. What do we have to do next to get onboarded? You also have the added benefit there that you're not perceived as the pushy salesperson. So what this does when you use this humbling disclaimer is you either get the junk deals out or you get a lot more clarity about the good deals and how solid they are. Number two, willpower, it's overrated. You cannot white knuckle your way to success. This isn't me saying that hard work isn't important. This is me saying you have to do everything within your power to set yourself up so that when you're in the heat of battle, you don't have to make the hard decision. You've made it in advance. An example of this, if you've got an hour cold calling block and your goal is to get through 30 cold calls, That's going to take intense focus for that hour. And it's very, very easy to get drifting off course in that hour. So what I do is I open 30 tabs in my salesforce.com instance of each person I'm going to call. And when I make call number one, I exit out of that tab. When I make call number two, I exit out of that tab. And as the tabs get smaller and smaller and smaller, and you see yourself getting closer and closer to the goal, it's easy to keep your foot on the gas to finish the goal. Just setting an hour to make cold calls and stumbling through a couple dials and then getting distracted by your Facebook and an email that came in and a Slack message doesn't work. Stop relying on willpower to achieve your goals. Number three. So... We're going to talk about cold calls, I think, a bit today. And the thing that had the biggest lift in terms of results for me when it came to cold calling was when I started using what I call, uh, really what Sandler calls, a permission-based opener. When you cold call somebody who doesn't know you and is not expecting your call out of the blue, they immediately, their brain immediately wants to know four things. Who is this person? Where are they calling from? Why are they calling me? And how long is this going to take? Because I have a job to do. What you do is you address three of those four things immediately up front. They answer the phone and they say, hello, this is Alex. What you say is, hey, Alex, this is Nick Sigelski with 30 Minutes to President's Club. I know you didn't expect me to call you this afternoon. 
Do you mind if I take one minute to tell you why I'm calling? And you can let me know if it makes sense for us to speak. I've said my name, where I'm calling from, how long this is going to take. And I've even given them the added benefit of they're in control. They can say no. Yeah. And I'm going to answer that fourth question. I just need their permission. Say about 75% of the time, they're going to say, this is a horrible time. I'm driving to the doctor's mm-hmm. office. I can't talk. Great. Hang up. Call somebody else. You don't have to shove this down their throat. But the people who give you permission on a cold call, there's almost two pieces you have to get past. You need to get them not just to hear what you're saying, but to listen to what you are saying. And saying things without permit, getting permission to say them, i.e. saying your pitch or value proposition or problem proposition, whatever you want to call it, without them explicitly saying, all right, go ahead, you're just a telemarketer at that point. So get permission. Now you're a professional. Mm, I love it, Nick. So let, let's kind of put on the magnifying glass and see each one of these a little deeper. Yep. So when starting from the, this third point, which uh, I really love, are you? Are you actually asking the permission for the individual right in the beginning of that call? And then what if they say, now is not a good time? Are you trying to deal with the objection? Or are you actually saying, fine, let me move on to the next step? Yep. So I'm saying it all up front. When they answer the phone and they say, hi, this is Alex, I'm not saying, hey, Alex, this is Nick Sigelski with 30 Minutes of President's Club and pausing. Like the key is you can't have any pauses there because as soon as you pause, that gives them, like that's how a natural conversation goes. You pause and the other person speaks. And if you take a pause here, what happens is they think you're done. You haven't answered three of those critical four and you're you're just a junk caller at that point. So you have to, uh-huh. Up front, this is this is my name. This is who I'm with. I know you acknowledge the yeah. fact that you're an interruption. That 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 goes to the piece of we make quick decisions about people. You know, we make judgments on people. And by acknowledging the fact that you know that person didn't expect your call, you're immediately signaling you're a person with some degree of emotional intelligence. Yeah which is important to somebody when they're getting bombarded with a call out of the blue. So you acknowledge that. And then as part of that cadence, you're saying, do you mind, you're asking permission, if I take one minute, there's the length of time you're going to speak to tell you why I called, their brain wants to know why you called, and then you can let me know if it makes sense for us to speak. You're immediately also saying, I'm not the pushy salesperson that's gonna jam this pitch down your throat. I'm going to tell you the reason I called and then you're in charge. Now you better nail the reason that you called because otherwise you're going to get the classic, not interested, but now you at least have a fighting shot here. So there's that I can talk about if they say not, or if they say now is not a good time. So so imagine that they hear that and they say, look, Nick, I'm about to go into a meeting. I'm about to get a phone call. It's not a good time. Yep. How do you deal with those individuals? Well, let's think back to what I said earlier about the difference between listening and hearing. Mm. When you get that right away, it's one of two reasons that they're going to say that. They're either saying that because they want to blow you off because you're still just a salesperson in their mind. That's okay. There's ways we can get around that. Or they're telling you the truth. It's 50-50 at this point. Some people (laughs) are legitimately going into a meeting. Some people just want to get you off the phone. That's okay. All you're going to do is ask the next emotionally intelligent question, which is, Alex, no problem. When would be a better time for me to call you back? 
Now, the person who's telling you the truth is going to say, all right, this guy has some degree of emotional intelligence. Call me back at two o'clock. Okay, call that person at two o'clock. It's 50-50 as to whether or not you're getting a hit there anyways, but at least you've gotten a shot there. The other people are going to say, no, not interested, and they're going to hang up. All right, well, they were going to hang up on you anyways. Again, you should never be pitching somebody or telling them why you called without the permission piece because permission indicates listening. And unless you get the customer, prospective customer to listen to you, you're wasting your breath. So if they tell you they're about to go into a meeting, they're busy, call me later, fine. You need to reach that person when they're willing to listen to you for a minute. And that might mean you need to call them three times and every time they're about to walk into a meeting and finally they say, all right, you've been pretty persistent. Tell me why you called so I can tell you to go away. Well, great, here's your shot. Amazing. Nick, can you talk about the finding the emotional, again, intelligence of actually calling the individual on his cell phone, right? Because that's a certain sense of, that's my private number. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be called on this number. Immediately, you're, you're kind of setting the tone that there's some, you're, you're invading my personal space. It doesn't seem like somebody that I want to engage in a serious conversation with or listen to. I, not listen, but hear. Well... I think that perspective is making an assumption about the other human being without actually getting their feedback. I don't own a phone besides my cell phone. All of my work calls go to my cell phone. I don't have an office phone. So if you want to reach me on the telephone, you have to call my mobile number. And I, I love getting called. I mean, look, if it's a cold call and the person's horrible, I'm, I'm probably going to say no, not interested. But if they've got something that's legitimate, I'm going to hear them out. So Don't assume that the person doesn't want to call on their mobile phone. With me, there's no other option. So, okay, that's just the (laughs) default of how people call me. A lot of people right now also are not at their offices getting calls to the office phone. So I think you can call the mobile phone because nine times out of 10, it's going to proceed just like a normal phone call. The the 10% of calls where somebody gets upset that you called their mobile number, okay, react like an emotionally intelligent person apologize. And then maybe you don't call that number again and you reach them another way. So I think if you call somebody's mobile number, you go in with that same permission-based opener. And if their response is, what the heck, this is my cell phone. How dare you call me on my personal line? You can apologize and you can say, Hey, I'm really sorry about that. Like, you know, I, I didn't mean to be a huge bother. I didn't realize, like you can say, I didn't realize this was your mobile number because if that's the truth, it's the truth. If they ask you, where'd you get the number? Again, I never, you should never lie to a customer. Tell them the truth. Uh For 99% of us, it's, I found it on the internet. (laughs) Well, you're not to blame there. The number is on the internet. And that could be if you found it in Zoom Info or Lead IQ. You found the number on the internet. You called the number. They're the bad guys, not me. Right. Beautiful. You know, I don't want to blow. And then here's what you might say if they're mad that you called that number. Hey, I won't call this number again. Is there a better way to reach you? They might actually tell you, yeah, call me on this number. Or most times they're going to say, oh, send me an email. Okay, I'm happy to send you an email. I guess I don't want to be the guy that completely blows your inbox up with a million emails. Would you be against me just telling you what I was going to say in the email? And then you can tell me whether or not I should hit send or not. Mm. Permission again. And again, it's that, it's that. Sh- going back to the same script of can I have permission? It's going to take almost the same amount of time for you to be actually opening the email and make a decision. We can make a decision right now if it's worth me actually doing this action. But you're stating it in a way of, I want to be 
courteous to you, why would you want another self, another call or another email? And I think one of the tips I got from your, from your show with one of the guests, which I really loved was saying this, you know, I, I, if you say, I'm not, I, I don't want to, the person says, look, I'm not interested. Yep. So the, to go back and say, look, actually I can totally, I, I totally understand, but do you think there's another person that would be the right individual to contact? Because the last thing I want to have is another salesperson in our company calling you in four months because yep. he thinks you're still the right person to talk to. And yeah. that is that notion of, again, going back to the, where is the customer coming from? Where's this person, the prospect? Now, I'm tr- I want to make this easy for you as possible. Would you want somebody else calling you in four months? Because we have your information. Maybe there's somebody better we should talk to. I mean, Alex, part of it also is you've sort of got like the self-deprecating humor weaved into it where it's like, you know, and I know we've got you on the phone here. Like, I feel really bad if I put together a really lame sales email and sent you that email and then it went to your junk folder and now you've got to empty your junk folder in Outlook. Would you be against me just telling you what, like you're kind of making fun of yourself and that has two benefits. One, it's a huge pattern interrupt. I do it throughout the entire sales process. And it's part of that humbling disclaimer too. If I'm negotiating with a customer, it's like, geez, you're going to think that I'm being such a salesperson with this, but X, like you, you insert something that like makes yourself look a little bit bad before you say something. One, it's kind of fun to do that Yeah. Two, you're no longer like, you're no longer this salesperson busting in with a ton of bravado. You're just like, you're being funny. It's kind of a little bit funny. Three, they want to rush in and defend you. If you tell the customer after the demo, like, oh man, I feel kind of embarrassed. Like that was really not my worst demo or that was not my best demo. And I feel like, I feel like I didn't really wow you with what we showed you. Like if they actually liked it, they want to rush in and make you feel better because they feel so bad for you. So you're flipping the script. You're no longer this like this salesperson with the oozing confidence and knows exactly what to say. You're like this person who's kind of stumbling and fumbling through it. And you're just trying to get to the truth of whether or not it's legitimately a deal or whether or not they legitimately want to hear you out. And when you do that, it gets so much easier. Hmm. Beautiful. So, so actually question that came up as you were discussing this option of, again, this, the making sure you go in not to those junk deals. Mm-hmm. A question is, at what point do you bring that up, that humbling disclaimer? I, you know, if, if a typical demo is, say, 45 minutes, mm-hmm. let's say 30 minutes, are you going around 20 minutes to 25 minutes and just saying, like, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm hearing from you? Doesn't seem like it's, I'm not wowing you at this point. Just want to make sure it's relevant. Where does that come up for you? I, I think the, the, the standard advice here is, if you sense it, say it. Uh-huh. If you're showing the demo and you're 20 minutes in and you're, you know, you look, oh, okay, we're 20 minutes in, I better say something. But the customer has been ooing and eyeing and you've gotten a marriage proposal during the demo. <laughs> like you probably don't want to use that humbling disclaimer, try to eject the deal there because they're like, what? We literally were just like clapping and cheering. Why would you say it just seems weird. So what you want to do is when you encounter any resistance or you have any skepticism about the deal, anything about it, the timing, the budget, mm. the authority side of things, whether or not they actually have a need. Oh, by the way, that's banned. You, you ask. So one of the ways that I do this a lot is, Hey, like 
I'm re- you know, okay, so I, I sell to law firms and mm-hmm. I usually sell to the finance folks at law firms, the director of finance, the mm-hmm. CFO, the controller, but the person who actually signs the contract is yep. the, the managing partner of the law firm. And that person, I usually only will talk to like once for like 30 minutes. They just want a quick sign off. And so if I'm getting close to when the customer has said they're going to sign a contract and I haven't talked to that authority person who actually signs the deal, I, I'm going to say something. It's amazing. A lot of salespeople, they like tiptoe around their deals. They don't want to ever say anything or uncover Mm. something that could mean the deal is going to blow apart. Well, that's actually your job as a salesperson Mm. to uncover the truth. So you might say something like, Alex, I kind of feel awkward saying this, but usually when we're this close to a customer signing a contract, we'll have had a conversation with Dan, the managing partner of your law firm. And I guess I'm getting a little nervous because I think you said you were going to sign the contract next week. And I'd rather be, this is one that I stole from, I don't remember who, I think Charles Mulbauer, when he came on my show, one of the lines he always says is, I'd rather be accurate than optimistic. And so you tell them, like, I just want the truth. I don't want optimism. I think it's because a lot of customers are, they're fearful of the salesperson's reaction. Because I think a lot of salespeople are fairly naturally likable. Like a lot Mm. of people get into sales because it's easy to like them. And so of course the customer likes the salesperson and they don't want to disappoint that salesperson by not having the deal come through. Not to mention that usually in the beginning of the deal, the customer told you all those reasons that they were interested in talking with you. They were interested in making a change. And if they don't end up making the change, well, there's a cognitive dissonance there where it's like they said they were going to do one thing. Now they're not doing that thing and their brains hurt. And then they're afraid of disappointing the salesperson. So I think you need to continue throughout the whole sales process to give the customer a chance to have an out. Because the more you do that, the more like you're cutting all the fat from the pipeline. If I have a deal in my pipeline, I want to know it's legit. They've got the budget for this thing. Mm -hmm. The person who's signing the contract knows about it, is aware of it, and is planning to make a decision. You have a sense of what the timeline is around this. It's not just a, yeah, we want to make a decision soon. Well, what the heck does that mean? Again, you can lean on the sort of the humbling disclaimer, accurate, over-optimistic. Okay, you guys want to make a decision soon. Well, it's the, the 29th of December right here. I know my boss is going to be asking me about this later this week. Like when you say soon, should I be telling him that you're probably going to make a decision in January? Or does that mean you're going to be making a decision this quarter? Like, I just want to make sure I tell him the right thing. Could you help me out with this, Mr. or Mr.'s customer? Yes. Then they'll help you out a little more. You, like when, when you actually go through that deal and the assumption is there might be some competitors yep. that are also bidding for a similar product or a similar, uh, similar deal, do you actively bring that up? I'm just curious who else is in the bidding process. Are you looking at other options? Do you want to discuss what they're offering you and see how we can you know, beat that price or what features they're offering you? Where does competitors, because there's only like these three options. It's either we're going to stay with the status quo, we're mm-hmm. going to choose you, or we're going to choose your competitor. It's like these are, or we're going to get close-up shops. So I guess that, that could be another choice. But assuming that the, four, the fourth is not on the table. So, you know, status quo is pretty understood because you probably did a status quo in discovery, right? You, you kind of understood this is where, you know, what's working. You gauge the pain of how, how much need there is to change. You might have changed, saw if there was a budget for that change. But then how do we speak about our competitors who are in that 
potential sales cycle, or maybe there's not. And bringing that up is going to make it seem like they're going to start thinking, oh, I, I, I didn't even know that there's competitors, right? Well, the rule of thumb here is if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So if you don't ask about other options, you're not going to get told the other options for the most part. So there's a couple ways you can do this. I think you need to, I found that the earlier in the sales cycle that you ask about other options, the more forthcoming the customer is going to be. If you get all the way towards the end, towards the piece of negotiating, the customer is going to have less incentive to tell you who, what else they're considering. So the way that you might even phrase this is like, you might just ask, well, what other options are you considering? Because options isn't like, I think if you have that super direct ask, like what other competitors are in the deal, they're going to yeah. be like, oh, okay, maybe I don't want to tell them that. But if you ask, what other options are you considering? It's sort of the same question, but it's less like, I want to know about my competition. I think the word competitor sometimes can like trigger the customer to put the defenses up. So I would lean on the question, what other options are you considering? You might even say like, if you are almost certain, like every time I'm in a deal, it's almost a hundred percent a competitive deal because I'm selling an ERP system. Uh-huh. And so one of the ways, one of the things I'll say is like, I have to imagine you guys are, are, are planning on talking to other folks. I'm curious who else you're talking to. And then if you give a reason here, you have a much better chance of getting an answer. Or if you're just curious about who they're talking to, well, why would they want to tell you? But if you say, I'm curious who else you're talking to, because that will help me understand what's more important to you as you go through this evaluation process. Because, okay, here's an example. I sell this ERP system and there's both cloud options and there's on-premises options. People are still buying on-premises ERP systems in the legal space. And so if I ask them who they're talking to and they only tell me cloud options, I can then respond and say, okay, well, it sounds like cloud is something that's really important to you. Well, great. Now we're actually having a conversation about what's important to them and I know the competitors. So I think giving a reason, anytime you ask a question in sales, you need to have a reason behind it. You can't just be throwing questions at the customer. They don't know why you're asking them. And eventually they get question fatigue where it's like, you've asked me 40 questions on this discovery call and I have no idea why. Giving a reason every now and then will help you get a better um, chance of actually getting a response, a detailed response. Amazing. And when you say find out, the person says, well, we're looking at these two competitors. Mm-hmm. Do you bring up your knowledge of those competitors in, in that call? Do you ask him more of like a consultancy component of saying like, well, I'm just curious, what do you see as the pros and cons of each one? Or are you looking at, you know, or do you f- f- say information? Like I've, se- you know, I've seen that we really stand out in this area and they're really good in this area. How do you start having that conversation about around other competitors? Yeah, I think it's too early when they first tell you to start going after the competitors because what I found in competitive, like I think there's a lot of conversation about how to beat beat competitors and not enough conversation about how do we just win the deal. So instead of talking about those, if the customer asks me, well, you know, what's your opinion on those folks? One, the rule of thumb I'm always going to lean on is our competitors are great. They are great organizations. We're better. You never trash the competition. It makes you look super junior. Mm. I think you also don't give an unsolicited opinion of a competitor without the customer asking for it. And so you might say when they bring that up, like, you know, those are both good. Those are both good options. I don't think you'd go down a wrong path with either of those other competitors. If you ever have, you know, if you're curious about my perspective on them, I'm happy to share like where they usually beat us and where we usually beat them. 
Now that's fine if you want to talk about that, but honestly, most of the conversation with the customer, I think should be spent digging in to why are they making this decision? What is compelling them here? And so I'd rather spend more of the conversation really digging into like the need and less into here's how we stack up to this competitor versus that competitor, because they might not care. Hmm. Like there's five or six different battlegrounds in every single deal. And there's almost no company that wins every single one of those battlegrounds. You don't need to win them all either. You just need to win what's important to the customer. So Mm. instead of ripping on competitors, spend extra time digging into what's most important to the customer and then target that throughout the sales process. It's good to know competitors, of course, but you should be spending most of your time on what's most important to them. The other thing you can do in a competitive situation is use the word why. The word why can sometimes be a double-edged sword because Mm. it puts the other person on the defensive. When you ask somebody why, they have to defend what they just, like they have to defend themselves. Uh So an example of this is, okay, they just told you who the competitors are. What you might respond with is, well, geez, X is a really, really good organization and I think they'd serve you well. And and Y has a ton of prestige. Like I, I know they work with a lot of other customers. I guess I'm curious, why are you still talking with us? Mm-hmm. Well, now the junior salesperson is like, oh my gosh, why would you ever say that? You're saying these people are really good and they might be better than you. Well, the customer now is going to defend the reason that they're speaking with you. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, now you see where they think you're powerful. They think now you, you have an insight into their world and why they think you might have an edge. Well, we really like you because of X, Y, and Z. Well, now you better believe that you need to push on X, Y, and Z throughout this whole process. And if they can't answer the question why, guess what? You are probably column fodder and you have a sense of how important you are in this deal. Mm. Amazing. Now, Nick, a question that we get for BDO, from BDRs is a lot of what we're doing is we're going to be setting up those demos on those meetings. And typically we're selling enterprise solutions mostly, right? Mm-hmm. Those solutions that the first call is typically a discovery call that the AE and the BDR do together. Yep. It's a little strange that the intention be- behind a person taking the meeting is not to go into a discovery call. Yep. I, would, I, would, I would wager that you know, the prospect is saying, solve my problem. Don't take 40 minutes. Don't take 30 minutes finding out about who I am. I just want to know your features. I want to know your pricing, right? So we've had many BDRs have shared that I set up a meeting, the A goes to the meeting and literally there's this disconnect where the A is thinking is coming in. I'm coming in to do discovery to try to understand if there's a fit. And then the prospect is coming to think that I have a solution for him. Right? How do you set up as a BDR that expectation to be clear without having the person like, whoa, like I, I don't want to be coming into a 35 minute questioning session. That doesn't seem like that's aligned with my priorities as a prospect. Like, I just want to know what you guys are offering. Demo the product. I want to see the demo. And AEs are saying, I'm not showing a demo. We're having a dialogue, right? We're having a discussion. We're having a discourse between the two of us, see if there's even a fit. And then I, maybe I'll show you like one or two slides. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the way that you frame this up is your product likely solves more than one thing. And there's probably more than one use case for what you're offering. And there's probably 
variable pricing, especially in the enterprise space. So there's different packages you can put together. And so the reason that you're doing this discovery is not to try to, you know, anger the customer or slow them down. You actually want to give them the most accurate pricing and the demo that's most tailored to their world as possible. So look, if the AE is going to be prepared to show just a little bit, if they can show a couple slides or maybe a couple screens of the demo on that meeting, I think the way you frame this up as a BDR is, okay, great. I'm looking forward to talking with you next week. I think the way that these calls, these meetings typically play out is we'll probably have some questions for you around whatever's important to you, whatever you need to know, I guess, as a, as a BDR or AE to, to show what's relevant on the demo and to give pri- put, put pricing together. So you might say, I'm looking forward to our meeting next week. Um, usually the way that these things play out mm. or typically the way that these things play out, again, you're letting them know that this is how everyone goes through it. Mm-hmm. Like you're not just like some dude who's shooting from the hip. So typically the way these meetings go is I'll introduce you to to Alex, who's the account executive over here. He's the one who will actually show you the demonstration and will probably work with you more as you guys get deeper into this evaluation. I know Alex is probably going to have a couple questions for you around X, Y, or Z so that the demo that we show is more relevant to your world and the pricing that we propose is, is accurate based on your organization. So that's sort of what you should expect walking into that meeting. Does that sound cool with you? Okay, great. Now, here, here's what's kind of cool. And this is great for your, I think a lot of BDRs probably have a goal of becoming an account executive one day. And here's where you have an opportunity to shine. If there's a bunch of questions that your AE is going to ask in the meeting and you know what those questions are, maybe you can even ask some of those there and then get that list in advance. And so I know Alex has a couple, well, we'll have a couple questions for you. I can, I can ask them now so we can save time on that meeting or we can go through it in the meeting on Tuesday. Great. Again, you give them the option, you're asking permission, but you got to set it up, right? You can't just say, great, we'll do the demo next week. Frame it as this is actually going to help you see a more relevant demo and the pricing will be accurate as opposed to like what I'll say a lot. If a customer says, no, no, I just want to go to a demo. I just want a demo. Well, Alex, there's about 800 things we could show you in a demo. And I've had demo, like, this is actually real in my world. We have demos that have gone eight hours long. I've done an eight hour full day demo. So I think you could say something like, look, there's about 800 things we can show you. And I know we only have 30 minutes for this meeting. I have a couple questions for you so that we're not showing you 800 things. We're just showing you the five or six that are super tailored to you. And then if they push back more, well, that's probably not a legitimate deal because customers want to see things that are relevant to them. And if they won't even give you the grace of answering three questions, that's not a deal, man. That's a junk deal. Love it. Love it. So again, it's, you know, we have their opener. We had to ask him for permission. We're going to have the value prop. And then it's going to, if an individual does agree to having that meeting, we also set the context for what's going to actually happen in that meeting. So we are going to show you a few things, but that meeting is also going to be about us asking those questions, which allow us to understand better how to determine the proper pricing and the features that are most relevant to you that we can show you, right? So, and maybe I'll ask some of those questions on that cold call itself, but really it's, we have to make sure that the context is set up as far as we want to give you the exact, want to tailor the demo specifically for you. So part of that call is going to be about asking some questions about your business. Yeah. And I think the less you frame it as a demo and the more you frame it as how we might be able to help you solve this problem, the better. And there's, it's, it's a slight nuance, but 
when a customer expects a demo, they, they kind of think like it's this stock like thing that they're going to see every time, as opposed to help you solve this problem. Because when you're leading on a cold call, you're hopefully talking to the customer about a problem that they have that you may be able to solve. Uh-huh. And when you talk about whatever you're offering in that context, the customer's more interested in finding a mutual fit as opposed to, hey, show me a demo of your thing and the features. So I, I don't think I've, like I haven't used the word feature in years when I'm talking about selling software because that immediately points to like this, this just standard stock, not really helping you with a specific problem side of things. So if you frame it up as, hey, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting next Tuesday to talk about how we might be able to help you solve X problem, I think my AE is going to have a couple questions for you to help really home in on that problem and how we might be able to help solve it. And then if it's relevant, we can show you how our product would help with that. I'm using the word help a lot. I'm using it as a, hey, let's talk about the problem because it's not about the software. Nobody, like none of our listeners here today sell software. They sell a solution to a problem. And the more you frame it in that way, the better. It works in competitive deals. There's times I'll call people and say, oh yeah, we're using a competitor for that. Doesn't matter if the problem exists. If a problem exists, there's something to be sold to fix that problem. I love it. So let's let's take us back to the, the beginning of that first point you brought up to take us home, which is you know, is making sure that we are set up for that success, a white knuckle approach. So we're talking about batchings on our calendar, right? So let's say 60 minutes, we're trying to get that, say, 30, 40 calls. And then your approach is opening up tabs. I imagine a lot of our listeners use outreach, sales yep. loft. So those will be queued up. Yep. And what I'm seeing is a lot of reps might go through the first 10, right? And they'll maybe they'll have a good call or they'll do a metric like connect, right? So they connect it to that prospect, even though the prospect said to them, like, I'm not interested, right? So then mm-hmm. they go and they Salesforce and they go fill out the notes, like, you know, great. Like it goes, yeah. connect, X like connected. Right. And then they go off to LinkedIn and they're gone. Right. So anything but like a a hang up or, or like a call that doesn't go anywhere usually can derail that momentum. How do you handle that? You don't do anything else in a time block. I think it's been beaten in my mind to death, but it's amazing that we still have to say it. Human beings are horrible multitaskers. (sighs) If I'm cold calling, the only things that I have open are my phone for calling, like the numbers I'm punching into my phone and the application from which I am calling. So what that, what that looks like is you shut down Slack, you shut down your other, your emails, you're, you're not looking at your texts, you're not going on Instagram. The only thing you're doing in that time block is that specific thing anything else and you just get pulled into different rabbit holes so save all of your notes and stuff for the end i mean i i just keep a piece of paper and if i talk to somebody i'll jot a couple bullets about what we talked about and if they say yeah you know what i am interested will you send me a calendar invite yeah definitely do it in 20 minutes at the end of your call block there's like the customer's not going to say oh 
you know, we talked at 1040 and now it's 11 and you sent me the calendar. <laughs> right? we're, we're not meeting. Like, these people are busy. They're going from meeting to meeting to meeting. Do one thing at a time. And what will happen is I think we overestimate as humans, like how much we can get done in a day. And until you really time block it out, you don't have an accurate picture of it. I, I, I guess I first discovered time blocking when I was a BDR and I had to make something like, I think it was like 50 calls a day, right? And we were allowed to leave the office after we made those calls. We started at 7 a.m. and the end of the workday was five. It was a brutal day. And I would come into the office and I'd say, okay, I've got 50 dials ahead of me. And I would just bang them all out first thing in the morning. I would, I, I wouldn't actually, this is great. I wouldn't let myself use the restroom right. once I got into the office until I had made at least 10 calls. And so I'd be sitting there and be like, okay, like I'm having my coffee. I got to make these calls. Like you put these artificial constraints in place and you'll find a way to get it done. As opposed to everyone else, they'd come in, they'd slump in the chair. They're looking at sports center. They're on Facebook. I would show up and be like, all right, I got to use the restroom. I better start calling now. And so what happens then is you get that momentum. Boom. I'm already 10 dials deep into my day. Oh. Everyone else is still sitting there. So you put these artificial constraints in place. You no longer have to force yourself to do things. Like it's just the natural direction you're going to move. And when you go through those dials and you have that HQ number, that mobile yep. number, and you got the, and then you got the direct say. All right, let's assume you got all three. Yep. Are we just going direct mobile HQ? What's or we're we just trying to go one channel at a time? Are we doing a double dial? What's your approach for that? I think you need to call the number that has the highest likelihood of being answered. For most people, that's going to be the mobile number. Depends on industry, depends on the role you're calling into, but I think for most people, it's the mobile number. So I'd call the mobile number, and if you don't get an answer, just move on to the next person. I've heard the double dial, the triple dial. I'm not crazy about it, truthfully. You know, like calling somebody's cell phone twice in a row, I feel like has sort of a high, higher likelihood of getting them upset, but I've heard people have success with it. I think if you're going to take that approach, the more customer-friendly approach might be you try the mobile number, and then if that doesn't work, you call the HQ number and try to go in that way. Because then at least like it's different routes. And I guess the virtue of having someone's phone ring twice in a row through different routes is all right. But I think you call the mobile number and move on to the next person. Hmm. And do you have a take on voice messages? Is that part of your approach? Do you believe it's valuable right now? Is there a certain sense of like, I get an ROI from it, I don't? Yeah. And I think most salespeople completely over-engineer their voicemails where they leave like a 30 second voicemail and mm -hmm. they're customizing it. I mean, it could literally be as simple as Alex, this is Nick with 30 minutes to president's club. When you get a minute, give me a call. Thanks. Hey, Alex, this is Nick Sigelski with Shorepoint. I can be reached at 585 and give your number. I think a lot of salespeople also will go into their voicemail and they'll They'll say, Alex, this is Nick Sigelski with 30 Minutes to President's Club. The reason I'm calling you, and then they go into the value prop. The problem with that is that's how every other salesperson leaves a voicemail. Their name, where they're calling from, and then the reason. And all you got to do is flip it. So you can say, Alex, the reason I'm calling you is, insert value prop. And then at the end, you say, and this is Nick Sigelski with company. Well, now they're going to listen to the value proposition. And if it's something that resonates with them, they can get your contact info at the end of the voicemail. So you just flip it. I think one of the big pieces of advice that I've tried to live by recently is look at what everybody else is doing. 
and do the opposite. <laughs> so many of us, well, I mean, think about this for a second. Everybody wants to have like an extraordinary life. Yeah. Everybody wants to have a special, extraordinary life that's like different from the rest. It's above the rest. It's better than the, the rest. But our actions don't reflect that. So many people follow the crowd. They follow the pack. And if you just, and so those things don't mesh, right? Like if you want to be extraordinary, why are you doing the ordinary, what everybody else is doing? So look at what the crowd is doing and find a way to do it differently. I mean, the biggest example I remember was my first SDR, one of the biggest examples, my first SDR job, I lived about 12 miles away from the office. And I live in Southern California and the traffic here is horrible, but the weather's great. And I was like, man, I don't want to spend a bunch of money on a car. And I don't want to sit in a car in horrible traffic going to and from the office. So I bought an electric bicycle and it looked super dorky. And all of my coworkers made fun of me for it. Like it really didn't feel good. They all were like, you look like such a dork with your helmet. And like, this is so silly. And I rode that thing to, to work every single day to and from work and on the bike, because I'm kind of getting a mild workout. It's like the equivalent of like a, an easy jog. It's not yeah. like a sprint. I, I would listen to sales podcasts and everyone else who was just sitting in the car, listening to sports news, or just listening to the same music they've been listening to for the past past year. I was getting better and better mm. and better. And it's how I went from, I think, SDR to an enterprise AE in less than a year was because I was getting two workouts a day on the bike, fresh air, sunshine, and I'm listening to sales podcasts. So yes, I looked like the biggest dork in the world on the bike listening to a sales podcast. But let me tell you, man, that accelerated my career and my income and my physical fitness like none other. Amazing, Chief. Amazing. Nick, to take us out, what's one thing that you're seeing a lot of reps doing right now that just need to stop? I think the biggest thing is sales reps are trying to win deals in the sense of they're trying to force a deal to happen. That's not a deal. Yeah. There are two things that sales reps should be doing. They should be getting to the truth with customers. And we talked a lot about that mm -hmm. today with the humbling disclaimer, and they should be prospecting like machines. If you have a full pipeline because you've been prospecting and you're focused on just getting to the truth, you bring good deals in, You ax out bad deals with the humbling disclaimer and life gets really good. <laughs> Nick, what's one thing that our community could give back to you, Armand? What's, what's one thing we, we could do to give back as you've given so much to us? I, I think the biggest thing is go help somebody else who's starting out in sales because I was thinking about this this morning. My, my first SDR job was super, super depressing. <laughs> like I just come out of college and I had these big aspirations for my life and I wanted to run a company. Oh. I knew I had to learn how to sell first. So I got this SDR job and you just get punched in the face yeah. day in and day out when you're a new salesperson. And yes. I think a lot of salespeople don't show that either. Like on the surface, they just take that like frustration internally. And so the biggest thing is like, Go find a salesperson who might be struggling, usually a new salesperson, and put them like give them a podcast like this to listen to, or have them listen to my podcast. And and just by learning and getting better, you'll change that person's life. Thanks. Here are my top three takeaways from the conversation with Nick Sigelski. On that opener, make sure you're addressing the top questions that they have in mind. Who are you? Where are you calling from? Why are you calling? And how long is it going to take? Answer three of those questions and then ask for permission 
to continue with the reason. Make sure that when you're dealing with an objection, that's customer focused. Look, of course I could send you an email, but I feel bad spending an hour writing an email and then it just goes into your spam box and then you have to clear your spam afterwards. Can I just take 30 seconds to share you with what we do and if it makes sense to speak further? Human beings are terrible multitasking. So make sure that you're batching your slots on the calendar. Dedicate an hour towards emails, an hour towards research, an hour towards call calling, and only focus on that one thing during that hour. Look, we'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast and which international guests you'd want us to highlight during the course of the show. Reach out to myself or Ilan and give us your feedback. Tell us what's working about the podcast and what you'd like to hear more of. Thanks.